Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Revelation chapter 2 that I'm looking at in my Bible. And it is Revelation chapter 2 that I would encourage you to be finding in your Bible as well. We will be in the book of Revelation exclusively this morning as well as this evening. So I hope that ought to make it very, very easy for you to be following along in the Word of God for these next few minutes. As you're turning to Revelation chapter 2, let me just join in the welcome from earlier. It is great to see everybody this morning. And we do have a really, really good number, even though we have a large quantity of our own folks who are fall-breaking this week and they are traveling and worshiping in other places today, uh, we still have a good number in this place as we worship God together in spirit and in truth. Thank you so very much for being here today. In Revelation chapter 2, let's just get right to it. As the Lord addresses the church at Pergamum, He says to them in Revelation chapter 2 and in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. You know, for the longest time I have read Revelation 2 verse 13, and have felt very far removed. Very, very distant from a time or a society that would kill people because of their faith in Christ Jesus. That just seems like something that is just so distant from me. But then last Sunday, September the 24th, a gunman entered the Burnett Chapel Church of Christ in Antioch, Tennessee and began shooting indiscriminately, killing one lady and wounding seven others. And suddenly, in that moment, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13 didn't seem so far away anymore. Now, I'm not entirely sure, I don't think anybody is really sure yet, of the motives of that shooter. That still hasn't been made entirely clear. The investigation is still ongoing. But I think that maybe for the very first time in my life, the thought of religious persecution became very, very real to me. And that's not to say that the storm clouds haven't been brewing and gathering for quite some time. But this, this was just three hours away from here. This was in a church building where inside worship was taking place, probably not dissimilar to the worship that we are engaging in this morning. This was a wake-up call, at least it was for me, about the reality of the world in which we now live. No longer do we have to look halfway across the globe to places like the Middle East or to China where brethren are being severely persecuted for their faith. No. No, now we are seeing evidence of that right here in our very own backyard. Which makes me wonder, how much thought have you given to being persecuted? How much thought have you given to being genuinely persecuted for what you believe? And know this morning, I am not talking about persecution in the way that we sometimes define that. You know, being ridiculed for your faith in the hallways at school. Being laughed at because you're a Christian. Being passed over for a promotion at work because you had convictions and you would not compromise on that. I realize those are forms of persecution, but that's not what I'm talking about today. This morning I'm asking how much thought have you given 
to paying a price, a substantial price for being a Christian. And what I really want to know, what I'm really pressing this morning is, are you ready for that? Are you prepared to be persecuted? I realize that that is a very uncomfortable question to ponder and to think about, but it is one that I believe we must entertain. And the very best place that I know to entertain that question from is right here in the book of Revelation. Because Revelation is the book of the Bible that is best suited to teach us about persecution because it was written to Christians who were being persecuted. What can we learn from God's message to them that would be of help to us? Now let me give you the fine print this morning before I go any further. Listen very carefully. It is not my intention to be an alarmist. That's just not my MO. I don't think anything good is gained by by panicking and freaking out and running around acting like things are just way worse than they actually are. Let's be very clear here. We still live in a country that affords us incredible freedoms and incredible liberties. We gathered together this morning without any fear that we were going to be arrested by our government, right? Did anybody fear they were going to be arrested this morning? And in all honesty, most of us do not expect that we are going to be shot today because of our faith in Christ Jesus. And so please understand, I'm not trying to be chicken little this morning running around. The sky is falling! The sky is falling! I'm not going to be that guy. But at the same time, it is impossible for us to ignore That there are people, there are groups, there are agendas even in this country who are very serious about abridging our religious freedoms and liberties. And I believe it does us no good at all to pretend like that just isn't so. We need to be aware of that. We need to be thinking about that. We need to be praying about that. Most of all, we need to be preparing for that. The time to buy an umbrella is not in the middle of a hurricane. We need to be ready now for if, no, when persecution arises. This morning we do want to use the book of Revelation to highlight three essential truths about this very sobering and serious subject. And the very first of those truths is probably the most fundamental of all. Because the Bible just makes abundantly clear that Christians ought to expect to be persecuted. You know, the Bible just has a wonderful way of not pulling any punches at all. The Bible just gives us the straight truth, as hard as it might sometimes be. It's able to do that without sugarcoating it and without any varnishing at all. And that is particularly true whenever we talk about the subject of persecution. Because over and over again, the message of Scripture is clear. The message of Scripture is, it will happen. Christians will be persecuted. Let's just notice some of that. We've already seen it there in Revelation 2 verse 13. Are you still in that chapter? Just back up a little bit. In the Lord's letter to the church at Smyrna, the Lord says to those Christians in verse 10, in Revelation chapter 2 and in verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. That that doesn't really seem to leave any room for, well, maybe this is going to happen. No. Jesus says, you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, 
that you may be tested. And for ten days, notice this, you will have tribulation. That's a certainty. Jesus says to those Christians, you will be persecuted. Want to see a little bit more of that? Look in chapter 6. In chapter 6, look with me beginning in verse 9. In chapter 6, to those same Christians of the first century, Jesus said, in chapter 6 and verse 9, When He opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Slain for the Word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before You will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. I'll tell you, if I had been living in the first century and I was reading Revelation for the first time or I was hearing it read to me for the first time, I would be fixated on those final words at the end of verse 11. Killed as they had been. Could that be talking about me? In chapter 13, in chapter 13, Scripture continues to trumpet that reality as it speaks of the havoc that the beast would create. There are all of these different images that are given of the devil and of the forces of darkness. Here it's depicted as a beast. In chapter 13 and in verse 16, in chapter 13 and verse 16, the beast causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand of the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has that mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Do you know what that's talking about? That's talking about economic persecution. Sometimes maybe we don't always think in those terms. But think about the difficulties that that would pose to be persecuted in an economical way. In chapter 17 now, In chapter 17, I'm looking here at verse 6. The devil's depicted here as this great prostitute. The great prostitute, chapter 17, verse 6. I saw the woman drink or drunk with the blood of the saints. The blood of the martyrs of Jesus. I don't think anybody heard that in the first century and thought, Oh, that's... That's not going to happen. That couldn't happen to us here. And you know, even if it did happen, it would only be for just like a minute, just a short time. No. No, Revelation makes plain that persecution is happening and that more is to come. And in fact, Revelation even does us one better. Revelation even explains why that was happening to Christians. And that's because there's a war going on. Are you still there in chapter 17? Drop on down because the Lord says, Christian, don't take it personally what's happened to you. In fact, it's not even about you at all. In chapter 17, drop down to verse 12. In chapter 17 and in verse, excuse me, not verse 12, verse 14. In verse 14, they will make war on the Lamb. That war, the fight, the battle that is going on, it is with the Lamb, with Jesus Christ. That is who Satan and the forces of darkness are trying to attack. And guess what? We, we in turn, we suffer in that war because of our allegiance to King Jesus. In fact, that's spelled out even more clearly in chapter 12. Would you drop back to chapter 12? In chapter 12, here Satan is depicted as this great red dragon. In chapter 12, in verse 13, in chapter 12, verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, 
He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Drop down to verse 17 now. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That, that's us. We are in that verse. Since the dragon hates Jesus, the dragon hates you. He hates what you are doing this morning. He hates everything about what your life is about as a child of God. And what Revelation assures us of is that we are part of a titanic struggle that's going on between good and evil, between light and darkness, between God and Satan. We are part of that. In fact, in many ways, we are in the middle of that war. And that is exactly why when persecution comes, really the most foolish question that we could ask is, why? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to us? Why are we having to assemble for worship in secret, in in darkness, and in the, the cloak of secrecy? Why was Brother Jones, why was he dragged off to jail in handcuffs? Why did that man come into our church building and start firing his weapon? The Lord tells us why. Because there's a war going on. It is a spiritual war. And in any kind of war, soldiers are going to suffer. And in fact, soldiers are going to die. And our enemy is so wicked and so perverse that he would do anything within his power to cause us to renounce our allegiance and our loyalty to Jesus Christ, including making us suffer physically, emotionally, uh, economically, and maybe even killing us. He will do anything to win that war against the object of his hatred, Jesus, the Lamb of God. You know, the truth of the matter is, we have lived in a bubble. And we have lived in that bubble for a very long time. It's really rather unprecedented in all of history that we have been able to go so long here in America without any kind of real persecution. Think about it. There was not a state church established whenever the United States of America was founded. There was not a state church that then established and enforced a certain dogma or doctrine And everybody who was not in compliance with that state church and its doctrine was then made to suffer and hauled off in chains to jail. No, we've never had to experience that here in the United States. In fact, that's the reason we left England in the first place, because we didn't want any of that kind of stuff. And for the past 250 years or so, that's really been quite wonderful for us. It means the gospel has been able to be taught freely. It means that churches have been able to be established all across this land. And it means that Christians have been able to assemble to worship without the fear of man or the fear of government reprisal. But it is clear, we're in a bubble. And there are people who would like to let the air out of that bubble to see it shrink and yes, to even see it collapse. What Revelation is saying is it's saying when that happens, don't be surprised. Don't act as if that was just totally unexpected. Being persecuted is how it has always been for the people of God. Christians should expect to be persecuted. Which leads right in to this second truth. Because the book of Revelation tells us exactly what it is that we are to do 
whenever that persecution comes. And that is that Christians need to persevere in persecution. The Scripture's main admonition whenever we find ourselves living in a time or a place of persecution is that we must never, ever give up. Do not quit. Do not give in. In fact, in chapter 12 and verse 11, in chapter 12 and in verse 11, we have what might very well be, I think, maybe the key to understanding what the book of Revelation is all about. Sometimes people have all kinds of weird ideas about Revelation. I think a passage like this helps us understand what this book is really about. In chapter 12 and in verse 11, it says that they, this is talking about the righteous, the saints, they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony... For they love not their lives even unto death. You want to conquer the devil? And the Bible says you persevere. You stick it out. You remain faithful to the Lord. You will conquer the devil by the blood of the Lamb whenever you refuse to knuckle under and forsake Jesus and His ways. In fact, that theme is just sounded repeatedly throughout Revelation. Look in chapter 2 again. Look in verse 10. Don't fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. The next thing Jesus says is, Be faithful. Be faithful unto death. That's the key. Persevere. Be constant and true and faithful to Him. In chapter 14 now. In chapter 14, John records this in verse 12. In chapter 14 and verse 12, here is a call for the endurance. Your Bible may even say the perseverance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. One more verse in this connection, in chapter 21. In chapter 21, what exactly happens to people who don't do that? What happens to people who don't persevere? What happens to people who quit? What happens to people who, under the intense pressure of persecution, they throw in the towel? What happens to them? Revelation 21, verse 8, But as for the cowardly and the faithless, as well as the detestable murderers, sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The Bible says we must persevere. And maybe you're asking, well, well what's the key to that? What is the key to, to stick to itiveness? What is the key to remaining constant and steadfast and being perseverant? Well, the key to perseverance, I believe, is found in chapter 11. Would you go back to chapter 11 of Revelation? In chapter 11, there in the midst of a lot of the symbolism that Revelation is most famous for, we read about these two witnesses. Now, we're going to read several verses here, and I don't want you to get too bogged down in all of the signs and the symbols here. We can discuss those and look at those further at another time. Just kind of focus on these two witnesses that are described here. In Revelation chapter 11, beginning verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, 
And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Talking, continue here about these two witnesses. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Hey, that sounds like the prophet Elijah. Furthermore, they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Kind of sounds like Moses. Verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Whoa. That seemed kind of unexpected. Verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth, verse 10, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell upon the earth. If you like to underline things in your Bible, can I get you to underline that last phrase? That they had been a torment to those that dwell upon the earth? That's it. That is our job. That's how you persevere. Our job is to be a torment to those who dwell upon the face of the earth. Now, let me kind of qualify all of that and make sure you understand what that means. That does not mean that we are going to terrorize people and cause chaos and anarchy and, and break rules and laws and be disobedient and terrorize people in that way. No. Nor does that mean that we're going to be smug and arrogant and self-righteous and torment people with holier-than-thou religion. No, that's not what we're doing and that's not what this passage is talking about. What's going on there in chapter 11, verse 10? What was it that was tormenting the people of the earth about those two witnesses? Well, what tormented people about those two witnesses was that those two faithful witnesses spoke the Word of God. Furthermore, they lived the Word of God. And as a result of their life and their actions, it tormented the sinful world that was around them. These two witnesses tormented the earth by how they loved their neighbor, by how they practiced the golden rule, by how they bore up under pain and suffering. By how they consistently and constantly lived out Christianity. By how they put Christ's kingdom first above all else. By how they forsook the pleasures of sin. The list goes on. These witnesses, just by the virtue of the way that they live their lives, it announced to the world that there is much more to this life than just this life. That there will be a day of judgment that is to come. That someday we will all stand before the Lord and give an answer for how we lived our lives. There is a day when we will have to give an answer to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Let me ask you, when the world sees that, when the world sees that message being lived and being spoken in our lives, how do they feel about that? How do you think they like that? To those who love darkness, 
How do they feel about the light? They hate it. They despise it. It it torments them. You know what? That's our job. Our job is to torment this world through righteous living. In the midst of persecution, I want you to hear me very clearly here. In the midst of persecution, our job is not to storm the steps of Washington and demand that all of the laws be changed so that we can maintain our religious freedoms. That ain't in the Bible. Nowhere in Revelation does the Lord tell those persecuted saints that what you need to do is you need to go on Facebook and social media and you need to whine and complain about how mean and oppressive everybody is to us Christians. No! When persecution comes, Christians don't rely on the Supreme Court. Christians don't rely on the Bill of Rights. We don't even rely on our President. We look to King Jesus. And when we are faithful to Him, when our choices and our priorities reflect His light and His desires, when we refuse to give up, when we refuse to cave in, and we are willing even to die for Him, that, that torments the world. And yeah, they might be tormenting us through various avenues of persecution, but we are tormenting them right back through our perseverance and our steadfastness. And we do that. We do that because because we know how this story ends. If you've read the book of Revelation before, you know the ending already. Spoiler alert, because this is the third and the final truth from Revelation, and that is that we know... We know that Christians will be glorified after we have endured persecution. If you want to try to keep the main thing, the main thing in Revelation, this is it. This is exactly what Revelation is all about. Telling Christians who are really suffering for their faith, don't give up. And why? Because glory is coming. Would you go back to that passage again in Revelation 2 verse 10? Jesus says there... You can expect to be persecuted. You will have tribulation. But if you'll be faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. That's it. That is the promise. That is the glory that is to come. We'll see that again. Look in chapter 15. In chapter 15, look in verse 2. In chapter 15 and in verse 2, John says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those, notice this, who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. They are victorious. We'll see that again. Look in chapter 20. In chapter 20, look in verse 4. In chapter 20 and verse 4, John says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Well, what is it? Here's all these persecuted people, all these persecuted saints. Whatever became of them, notice what he says. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Let me add one more passage to that discussion in chapter 21, maybe just across the page. In chapter 21, in that ultimate glory of heaven, where God will dwell with His people and He will be to them as their God, verse 3 says, verse 4 then says, 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You know, we often read Revelation 21 verse 4 today, and we read that whenever someone has passed away from from cancer, or some other kind of natural causes, old age, and let me be clear, there is, there is an application there. I get that. But you know what? Nobody who was reading Revelation 21 verse 4 in the first century, nobody back then was thinking about cancer. What is it in Revelation 21 verse 4 that is causing these Christians to weep? What is it that is causing that mourning and those tears? What is the death that they are knowing all too well? What is the pain that they are experiencing? It is the sorrow and the pain and the death that is caused by persecution. And what Revelation 21 verse 4 is saying is that persecution, it will come to an end. That Jesus is coming to take care of that, that will be no more. Instead, drop down the same chapter, verse 7. Instead, verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and He will be my Son. Revelation tells us that God vindicates His children. God will handle fully and finally and completely those who have dared to make war against the Lamb. Those who have made war against Jesus and His people, they will be destroyed. They are not getting away with this. In fact, Scripture bears that out further. Look in chapter 14 again. In chapter 14 and in verse 9, In chapter 14 in verse 9, another angel a third followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. If you look across the page in chapter 16, in chapter 16 and in verse 5, I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, verse 6, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets... And you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. In chapter 19, in chapter 19, one final passage, there is rejoicing that is going on in heaven. In chapter 19, what is that rejoicing all about? What are they saying? What are they shouting in heaven? In Revelation 19 and in verse 1, I heard them cry out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. God. God will write the last chapter in this story. And it will not be favorable to those who have persecuted His church. And so we sing in that grand old hymn. Here all who suffered sword or flame for truth, for Jesus' lovely name, they shout victory now and hail the Lamb and they bow before the great I.
What a wonderful moment that's going to be. To shout victory. To shout eternal victory. When God deals retribution to our enemies, He will exalt His servants. And in that moment, we will know ultimate victory. I believe it is that third truth, that conviction, when we have that solid and built deep within our hearts, I believe that that is what helps to see us through the storms and the horrors of persecution. Now let me close with this final word of application. I think we need to understand this. Because anytime something bad happens to the people of God, there's always going to be some Christian who's going to be quick to say, well, we shouldn't worry about that, we shouldn't fear, because God is in control. You hear that all the time. God is in control. And you know what? That's true. That's absolutely true. God is sovereign. He is in control. But I worry sometimes that when folks say that, what that means in their mind is it means God is in control, so He won't let us be persecuted. Wait, 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 wait here. Who was in control when those saints suffered in the first century? When persecution arose then, and saints suffered, and saints died, who was in control back then? God was. God was on His throne then, just as He is on His throne today. So please don't tell yourself, well, God is in control, and that means He'll never allow me to be persecuted because I'm such a fine Christian. Biblically, scripturally, that's not true. But in this powerful book of Revelation, we have seen what I believe are the essential truths about what it is that we can expect in persecution, what it is that we need to do in the midst of persecution, and thirdly, most importantly, why it is that we endure persecution faithfully to the very, very end. And while I would probably be the first to point out that yes, this book, it was originally written to a specific audience in a specific time. It was written to Christians who were suffering long ago. It is clear to me that its message is becoming more and more relevant to us today. It is helping us more and more today to be prepared for persecution. And so I'll ask you one more time. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to be persecuted? Now, as we extend the invitation of the Lord, I hope that no one will think it crass of me to revisit those events from one week ago in Antioch, Tennessee. If that gunman had entered this assembly, and he just started shooting people indiscriminately, I mean, he's just shooting anybody and everybody that just happens to be found inside this auditorium. Can I ask you, would you have been ready for that? That sends chills up and down your spine to think of the thought of that. But would you have been ready for that? Spiritually, would you have been prepared to leave this earth? You know, I hope that that sister who was shot down there and who died, I sure hope that she was prepared. But what I'm really most concerned about right now is whether or not you are prepared. If you're not a child of God, I'm not going to stand up here this morning and tell you that being a Christian is going to make your life easier. 
If you paid attention to the sermon this morning, you know that I would be a liar if I said that. But I'll tell you this. What being a Christian does do, it may not make your life easier, but being a Christian, it does make you suited for glory. That's what being a Christian does. When you are clothed with Jesus Christ in baptism, when you are living faithfully for Him and doing His will, it prepares you for the life that is to come. Is there someone here this morning who has yet to take that step? To have your sins washed away, to be forgiven, to be obedient to the gospel. This morning everything is ready and prepared and all things are just made available for you to be a Christian. You can do that in just a matter of minutes. We'd love to assist you in doing that. Brother or sister, if you're not living faithfully for the Lord, all of these thoughts that we just talked about today, and the sobering reality of what it is to be prepared for judgment, are just as relevant for you. You've not been faithful to the Lord. Repent of that. Ask God for forgiveness. Let us as your spiritual family encourage you and help you to be more faithful so that we can be faithful unto death. We can then receive that crown of life. You need to respond to heaven's invitation. Would you take advantage of this moment? Do that right now by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.